Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. We hope these daily podcasts are making our weird times a little bit more bearable. The Bunker has become my lockdown lifeline, says Apple Podcasts user Coilo27, so our hearts go out to you on that one. Remember, the best way you can support the podcast is by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. You'll get the show early, plus beautiful mugs and t-shirts and much more. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. My guest today is the rarest creature on earth, an optimistic historian, or rather a hopeful historian. The Dutch writer Rutger Bregman's new book, Humankind, is dedicated to the heretical proposition that humans are basically good and that Thomas Hobbes's idea that we're all selfish and horrible and have to be controlled by a strong authority is a load of rubbish or at least only true of Twitter. In Humankind, Bregman stands up for Rousseau's vision of man's innate goodness instead and cites many examples of humans being spontaneously social and altruistic. One of them which took flight this week was a real-life Lord of the Flies scenario, which we'll talk about a little bit later. If you're an old-school Romaniacs listener, you may remember we had him on the show a couple of years ago with his wild and crazy advocacy of universal basic income, which is now right in the middle of the uh, political mainstream. He's here with us now. Hello, Rutger Bregman. How are you and where are you? Hi there. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, I am in the very boring and provincial town called Houghton uh, in mm-hmm. the Netherlands. Uh, it's a little bit to the south of Utrecht. And how are things there? Well, it's a good place to be a writer, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> few distractions, let's put it like yes. that. <laughs> how is the uh, COVID response in the Netherlands looking like from where you are? I mean, the record isn't immediately great. There's 28th most cases per million, 10th most, most deaths per million. What are Dutch people saying about your government's response? Maybe the response was a little bit slow. Not as slow as in the UK, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, I mean, we're slowly, gradually opening up. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, everyone's Are really anxious fit? if there's going to be a second wave. You know, to be yeah. honest, I stopped being an amateur virologist a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> the end of the world came mm-hmm. and we didn't degenerate into barbarism. Mm-hmm. We didn't sort of uh, wall ourselves off in our, our communities. We're all delivering food to mm-hmm. needy neighbours. We've got interventionist governments and UBIs on the agenda. Um, so are you having a major I told you so moment? <laughs> well, it's hard to resist, certainly. Um, it's a fascinating time to be alive. You know, what it really reminds me of right now is actually what happened in Britain on the eve of the Second World War. I start my book with this example uh, that sort of the military experts and the politicians, including Churchill, were really worried that once the bombs would start falling on London and other British cities, that people would go nuts, you know, that they panic and that everyone would become really selfish and degenerate in this Hobbesian state of nature. Pretty much the opposite happened, obviously, once the bombs started falling, the keep calm and carry on spirit and the dry British humor, et cetera, et cetera. And this was explained then later by saying, oh, that's typical British culture, but we can bomb the Germans anyway because, you know, they have this very weak moral character, so they'll respond very differently. Now, obviously, the same thing happened in Germany. So the cities that were bombed the hardest in Germany actually saw increased wartime production compared to, uh, you know, a control group of cities that weren't bombed as heavy. So, yeah, it wasn't British culture. It was human nature. And now we have the corona crisis, and it's like history repeating. Again, the British establishment thinking that sort of the population can't handle it, sort of that people would get tired or fatigue or something like that. And that, uh, you know, that was one of the reason, what, reasons why the UK was slow to lockdown. But it's just, it felt like history repeating itself. You do write in the book that catastrophes bring out the best in people. Yeah. Uh, and that it's it sort of drives that social impulse that, that, that you, you argue for. Um, you do admit that you're pretty cynical about human nature before, before you wrote the book, that you probably did buy the kind of the Hobbes argument a little bit more than you did 
after writing the book, what made you want to write it? What you know, did, were you running across pre-existing evidence or arguments mm-hmm. that humans aren't purely self-interested? Yeah, you're right. In many ways, this book is a reckoning with my own ideas. I was on a podcast, what was it, two years ago, the Romanian yeah, podcast? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And so, obviously, we talked about universal basic income, you know, this really crazy idea of eradicating poverty by giving everyone a monthly grant that's enough to pay for your basic needs. And probably yes. I, I pointed to some scientific evidence, there's quite a lot actually, that this works, that no, people are not, you know, really lazy, they actually find a new job or start a new company. There's a lot of scientific evidence and and there have been many experiments that back this up. But what I experienced doing all those podcasts is again and again that after 20 or 30 minutes about talking about the empirical evidence, that you would be talking about human nature because that was the most common objections that people had against basic income was, well, you know, it sounds interesting and maybe it works on a local scale or in this small experiment in Canada in the 1970s or something like that. But in the end, you've got human nature to deal with. And people are just selfish. People are just lazy. So that's why universal basic income is never going to work. So that's when I realized that I had to dig a little bit deeper. What was kind of interesting when uh, that's flown from those discussions about universal basic income, the, in, your, in your previous book, Utopia for Realists, you talk about how one of the key experiments took place under Nixon, the last person mm-hmm. you would expect yeah. to want to run an experiment in effectively giving people money. And that the, the experiment was cancelled when it started to become apparent that um, that it might work. Yeah. And that, that, that there were people who didn't want the idea that human beings might function very well, actually, if given, you know, what a certain slice of the press would call a handout for nothing. Uh-huh. I mean, this is one of the great lessons of history to me, is that things can just be different. And there's nothing inevitable about the way we structured our society and economy right now. And if you zoom out a little bit, then just 40 years ago, things were being considered that are seem completely utopian right now. So it just it just takes a little bit more time than we usually think, right? We're often focused on this year, on the next year, or the period that this government is in power. But if you zoom out a little bit, then you can see that in 10, 20, or 30 years, you know, you can have massive changes in a society and ideas that are completely dismissed at one moment may become totally mainstream 10 or 20 years later. At surprising speed sometimes as well. You do point out that the idea of innate human selfishness is just generally not questioned. It's baked into economics, sociology, politics. We just assume it's been central to conservative thought forever. Yes. And and as the world is putting up more and more barriers, it seems actually to be getting worse. As you know, a stronger assumption that humans are essentially selfish. Why is it wrong to assume that? Give us the give us in a nutshell the key point why it's wrong to assume humanity is essentially a selfish species. So what we've seen in the last 15 to 20 years is that scientists from really diverse disciplines, so psychologists, sociologists, but also anthropologists, have moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more positive and much more hopeful view of human nature. So what I'm doing in this book is just to connect the dots and to collect all the evidence and show that there's something bigger going on. Because what sometimes happens is that all these brilliant specialists, you know, they know so much about their specific expertise, and then they don't realize that something similar is going on in the field next to them. Um, But there's, yeah, there's a really, the big commonality here is that researchers are emphasizing more and more that human beings have evolved to cooperate and to work together. And it's it's kind of refreshing to read this, because, you know, I've I've read Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond, like anyone else, and the idea that the human 
human beings just respond to uh you know carrots and sticks and they respond to incentives and they shy away from risk as if we're kind of meat robots hmm. is convincing but kind of depressing uh, but it's it's interesting how you demonstrate that that's actually far from the whole picture and in fact is in many ways a reduction of the whole picture yeah i mean we've all hurt sort of the standard story of our history in school you know this idea of the march of progress that supposedly when we were nomadic and gatherers life was really terrible and we had this war of all against all going on but then you know luckily we came up with this thing called civilization and so we yes. started living in villages and cities and we invented agriculture and the wheel and money and supposedly all these steps were you know was great news for humanity well the thing is actually if you look at the latest evidence we have from history archaeology and anthropology you get you know the complete opposite picture what you actually see is that for 95% of our history, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, and those were relatively good lives, you know, relatively healthy compared to farmers and city dwellers, relatively peaceful, so pretty much no wars, um, uh, also really egalitarian societies, you could even sort of like proto-feminist societies, you could even argue that. Uh, but then we invented civilization, we settled down, right? We invented private property, and, you know, it was just one huge disaster. You know, patriarchy, hierarchy, the era of wars, of pandemics, you know, malaria, the flu, the plague, uh, COVID-19. These are all sort of modern diseases of civilization. Um, it was just one terrible, terrible disaster. The only reason, I mean, the reason that we sort of forget this is that the past couple of decades have obviously been so good for humanity. I mean, we've made tremendous moral and technological progress is that you sort of tend to forget that actually the last 10,000 years, so the vast majority of the, the history of civilization, was pretty bad. It, it should be clear, though, that your, your books are not a manifesto for us all returning to live in caves. You're not a, uh, a one of those <laughs> extreme, deep green anti-civilization yeah, activists. So, but people will point out that, that you know, all, all that rapacious uh, behavior uh, and humanity's long record of sadistic cruelty, that's also a social product. The tribe can be social and aggressive. In fact, you know, in the 20th century, the great horrors of the 20th century were produced by great, strong tribal social uh, attachments Absolutely. allied yes. to aggressive hatred of other tribes. Yes. I mean, th the truth about humanity is that on the one hand, we're the friendliest species. In the animal kingdom, we have an extraordinary capacity to cooperate, and our bodies are even designed to do this. For example, we're the only species in the animal kingdom that blush, which is really a peculiar fact about us. I mean, why could would that be an evolutionary advantage to sort of give away involuntarily your feelings to someone else? Well, the answer is it helps. Isn't, isn't it the case that you know? Isn't it the case that other animals are just covered in fur and we can't see it? Uh, or do some, they really not blush? Well, there are some researchers who argue that some specific species of parrots can do it. But really? among uh, primates and mammals, yeah, we're really, we seem to be the only ones. I mean, it's interesting. You would, you would sort of wonder, you know, why didn't the people who blush die out, right? Why is that an evolutionary advantage? And I think you can explain it that sort of people who blush, you know, they tend to be trusted more. And trust is so important, you know, for survival and for cooperation in human societies. I mean, to, to put it in general, human beings... In, on an individual level, we're not that special, right? We're not very smart compared to pigs or, or chimpanzees. You know, if you have intelligence tests and, and, and let uh, pigs and chimpanzees and human toddlers compete, then often the pigs and the chimpanzees win, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're also not that strong. 
But what we can do is sort of cooperate and work together on a scale that other species just can't. But obviously, there's a dark side to this. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're also the cruelest species in the animal mm. kingdom. Uh, we do horrible things, wars, ethnic cleansings. And I think there's a connection there because, indeed, friendliness can often morph into sort of tribal behavior, you know, or sort of the in-group, out-group dynamic. You do talk about the the kind of uh, the the idea of the assumption of selfishness actually deforming political culture. That if if you create a model of the world that is only about incentives and punishments, and you surround it with a rhetoric of selfishness, then you are going to get a selfish world. Yeah. That yeah. if you spend your entire time saying that essentially, as I said earlier, human beings are meat robots responding to, to stimulus for their own personal gain. People will internalize that. I mean, or, or is it just that that idea is propagated by the kind of people who become politicians? Uh, I think that may be part of the explanation as well. We know from quite a lot of psychological research that power corrupts. And people who have been under the influence of power for quite a while tend to become more cynical. You know, they tend to become more nar- narcissistic and think that, you know, they have all these great ideas and that other people, you know, can't handle their own affairs. And you also have to keep in mind that a cynical view of human nature is often in the interest of those in power. Because if people can't be trusted, you know, if they're really selfish and evil, then obviously we need a leviathan, you know, as Thomas Hobbes Mm -hmm. put it, sort of we need those in power to control us, to make sure that we don't kill each other. Um, If people are actually pretty decent, then, uh, well, maybe we don't need them, right? Maybe we don't need all these career politicians and monarchs and CEOs and generals and you name it. Maybe we can organize our society in a much more egalitarian, um, genuinely democratic way. So it's uh, people may think, oh, he's written this nice, happy, clappy book about the power of kindness and how it can change your life. Well, actually, it's a quite subversive idea. You know, it's a quite revolutionary idea to assume that most people are pretty decent. Or that you need politicians who are, who are uh, connectors and uh, persuaders and, um, you know, advocate cooperation rather than what we seem to have now. I, mean, I, I can't speak for the Dutch government, but you certainly mm-hmm. you look at the cabinet over here and it's a room full of driven, socially awkward, very selfish <laughs> uh, people who are very good at identifying enemies and beating that enemy uh, like like a rented drum kit, as I heard someone <laughs> describe it the other day. Um so yeah, actually, I, your manifesto is, is not anti-politician. It's not anti-politics. It's for a different kind. No, exactly. So you just have to ask yourself the question, what would a real democracy look like? And if you look at the history of democracy, you know, it started in Greece, obviously. Well, that kind of democracy was very, very different from what we have now. I mean, the Greeks would say, uh, when they look at our system, they would say, well, that's not, that's not a genuine democracy, right? It's just you have career politicians and elections. I mean, they thought that elections were very undemocratic because they could easily be influenced by those who had the most money, right? So their solution was to randomly select from the population, you know, who would be the politician in a given year. Now, there were many, you know, weaknesses and dark sides to the Greek democracy because, I mean, for example, women and slavery were not allowed to participate. But this Mm. principle that... You could sort of let average citizens participate in daily politics. I think that's an incredibly powerful idea. And we actually have now 20, 30 years of of experiments around the globe with this so-called participatory or uh, what's it called in English, deliberative democracy. Um, Mm. And it turns out that it works really well. It increases social trusts and, you know, random people from the population, whether they're left wing or right wing or rich or, or poor or young or old, you put them together around a table, you let them have a reasonable discussion, and they come up with pretty good compromises. 
The book's full of lots of kind of fascinating new angles on things that we're familiar with, such as the, uh, you know, you find studies which show that in most wars, for instance, most mm-hmm. weapons aren't used. Most soldiers don't actually fight. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you argue that, you know, we're not wired for war. And you debunk some kind of touchstones of the idea of human selfishness, like the Stanford prison torture experiment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is taken as evidence that people will actually commit atrocities if they've given, if, if they've got the sanction of orders from authority. That is taken as a kind of, usually taken as a co- incontrovertible proof that humans are capable of terrible things if given the slightest excuse. Can you just take us through a little bit why perhaps that's not the ironclad proof that people have believed it to be? Yeah, sure. Well, maybe it's just nice to start with the Stanford Prison Experiment. You know, this was part of a whole generation of, uh, of, of experiments and psychologists after the Second World War. Uh, people were basically asking themselves the question, you know, how could this happen? You know, was this something peculiar to the Germans? You know, are they these, uh, these evil people? Or is there a Nazi in each of us? And that was indeed the suggestion of a couple of young social psychologists. For example, Stanley Milgram with his famous uh, shock machine um, mm. experiment in which uh, people were willing to give dangerous electric shocks to completely innocent other people. Um, but then also the Stanford Prison Experiment. So this became extraordinarily famous, you know, ended up in all the textbooks of all the psychology students around the globe. And um, it was about 24 students who were put, put in this fake prison in the basements of Stanford University. 12 were made into guards and 12 were made into prisoners. And then the, the head psychologist, um, the researcher, Philip Zimbardo, said, OK, you know, uh, just, uh, just run the prison. Uh, we'll just look back and see what happens, right? The story that everyone heard later was that very quickly the guards started behaving in a pretty horrible, sadistic way. And so the message of that experiment was, um, look, here you have these very healthy, nice, hippie students uh, and a couple of days later, they've turned into monsters. So that's mm. how we explain the Holocaust. That's how we explain the Second World War. Put normal people in an evil situation, and that's what you get. So the experiment became really, really fa- famous, uh, and Philip Zimbardo became one of the mo- most respected psychologists of, of our age, you know, s- still today. And it was only recently that a French uh, sociologist, his name is Thibault Le Texier, went into the archives of the Stanford Prison Experiment and discovered that it was a hoax, basically. <laughs> I think there's no <laughs> other way to put it. To, to explain a little bit, what, what Philip Zimbardo did is specifically instruct these students to be as sadistic as possible. Many of them said they didn't want to do it. Then he said, you've got to do it because then we can go to the press and we need these results so that we can sort of say, prisons are horrible environments. We have to reform the whole prison system in the United States. And some of them went along and that's how it happened. You know, it's like a real hoax. Um, mm. And this became one of the most famous experiments because somehow we seem to sort of want to believe this, or at least these stories do really well in the media, and they become sort of a virus that just spread around the globe. Well, this is the fascinating thing. There seems to be an emotional need for people to believe that humans are worse than evidence suggests that they are. And I, I wondered whether it is that emotional appeal that, that, that spreads it. You know, if I can convince myself of humanity's universal selfishness, then I'll feel better about my own impulses in that direction. I'll feel, I'll, yeah. I won't feel as bad about, about the dark side of myself. Yeah. And you don't have to do anything anymore, right? I, think, mm. I often think that cynicism is, a, is another word for laziness. Because if people mm-hmm. are evil anyway, I mean, then what's the point of activism, right? What's the point of actually sort of trying to create a better world? 
Now, if you actually have a more hopeful view of human nature, that impels you to act. It means you got to do something, right? Uh, and yeah. then you have to really think much harder about why there's still so much evil in the world, right? And what, what role you can play in, uh, in, in doing something about that. We have to talk about the Lord of the Flies episode, which is just brilliant. It's <laughs> the, the untold story of a real Lord of the Flies episode where a bunch of kids get shipwrecked off Tonga. Mm -hmm. And rather than, you know, degenerating into savagery, smashing each other's glasses and worshipping pig's heads, they are so nice to each other that not only do they build a chicken court, mm -hmm. they build a gym and a badminton court. Yeah. It's like idyllic. It's like Bart Simpson's holiday or something. Yeah. This is a wonderful story. How did you come across this? Oh, pure luck and pure coincidence. You know, I just asked myself the question, has it ever really happened? You know, was there ever a real Lord of the Flies? And so mm. I just started Googling, basically, and, and came across this anecdote on the internet, sort of an obscure blog somewhere, that told this story that said that supposedly this had happened in 1977. But, you know, I, I looked into this for a couple of weeks, but could, couldn't find any source to back it up. But then I was just lucky. I was sort of looking in a newspaper archive in, uh, for, of Australian newspapers, and by accident, I was looking in the 60s. And then suddenly I saw it, a newspaper article from 1966 that said, you know, six boys had shipwrecked on the island of Ata, which is a little bit to the south of Tonga. And uh, they had survived there for 15 months. And the newspaper yeah. said, this is already regarded as one of the great classics of the sea. And I was like, why don't people know this, right? Why haven't there been like a couple of Hollywood movies about this? I mean, this should be world famous, this story. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, one of them, you know, if you, if you were scripting this, you would not put in a scene where one of them breaks his leg and mm -hmm. the rest of the troop actually set his leg for him and help him. You would regard that as two on the nose. Yeah. Yet this happens. Yeah, yeah. No, if this would have been a movie, I mean, a fictional movie, people would say, oh, God, this is so sentimental. Yeah. This is so unrealistic. I mean, kids would never behave like that. But here we are. I mean, it really happened. And actually, it get, I mean, it gets worse. Uh, so the six kids were rescued by an Australian captain and developed a lifelong bond. Uh, actually, one of the kids uh, that I spoke to is a man named Mano. He's now 70 years old and lives in Brisbane uh, in Australia. And he's still the best of friends, soulmates with uh, this captain named Peter Warner. And they still go out sailing now and then. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a hopelessly <laughs> sentimental but real story. Well, you know, uh, reality has uh, has no obligation to not being sentimental. If it <laughs> happened, true. it happened, you That's know. That's true, exactly. So be before we wrap up, I mean, this idea of predictable human selfishness is is at the core of the behavioral science mm -hmm. that our government at least is 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 putting all its eggs in it's you know it's banking on this as the way that you can predict human behavior and you can incentivize it and all the rest of it mm -hmm. other ways of bringing useful altruism into the political mainstream and we talked earlier about universal basic income two years ago was a fruitcake wild idea on the fringes mm -hmm. now it's you know on the verge of becoming government policy in many countries. Mm -hmm. Are there ways of bringing these ideas of useful, useful altruism yes. into the main arena? Yes, I think you really have to remember that people are shaped by institutions. So it's all about institutions, institutions, institutions. I have not written a self-help book. Uh, mm. You know, I couldn't resist, obviously, you know, to write an epilogue with a couple of rules for life if you really adopt this hopeful view of human nature. But the most important point that I try to, you know, bring across is that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. And what we have been doing in the past 30 to 40 years is, is we've designed so many of our institutions 
you know, our schools, our workplaces, our democracies, even our prisons, around the idea that most people are selfish and lazy and not good. And I think we can turn it around. So uh, we already talked about participatory democracy, obviously. This becomes possible. You know, if you treat citizens as, you know, idiots, then they'll behave like idiots. You know, if you talk to them as if they're really stupid, then they'll behave in a really stupid way. If you treat them as adults, then they'll behave like adults. And um, the same is true for the work floor. Uh, I think you can have a much more egalitarian work floor. You can get rid of a lot of management. You can work in self-directed teams and all those kind of things become sensible. And I, I give a lot of case studies in the book that back this up. Uh, but even more radically, uh, I think one of the, the maybe craziest examples uh, in the book is about what happens if you implement this in prisons. You've got the prison system in Norway uh, where they treat people well, basically like people. So here you have these murderers and rapists and people who've done horrible things, but they're on in prisons where they have the freedom to, you know, do whatever they want, go to the cinema, mm. make music. There's a, they have their own music studio and own music label that is called criminal records. And, um, <laughs> and you look at it and you think, well, this is, this is crazy. The, the, the Norwegians have gone nuts, but then you look at the science behind it and the hard statistics. And you realize that actually these are the most effective prisons in the world because they have the lowest recidivism rate, right? So the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. So it really goes against your intuition. I mean, it's, it's easy to assume the best in your friends, but it's really hard to assume the best in your enemies or in strangers or those who are far away from you. But if you have the courage to do so, and if you implement it institutionally, you'll have a much healthier society. I would love to see that flying in Britain. I think we have a, we, I think we've got a bit of a, uh, a mountain to climb on that one, but it is, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. I mean, one, one thing it read that really struck me was the extent to which, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about the blitz spirit. We talked mm -hmm. about the altruism during a catastrophe and people pulling together. And the irony here, of course, is that the myth of the blitz where everybody pulled together is now being used to sustain a, a, a myth of a, of a separate nation and, and uh, you know, separatism and oppositionalism and, um, you know, uh, division in the country. That's just such an, an ironic use of it. The moment yeah. when the country pulled together is now being used to divide the country. Yeah. And I think it's going to take a while for yeah. us to get out from underneath that. Yeah. Yeah. But Very listen, good. Rocket, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Um, and humankind is out now. Uh, the clues in the title um <laughs> listeners we've got the full length show every wednesday of course and more bunker dailies on mondays tuesdays thursdays and fridays rocker thank you so much for joining us thanks andrew hope, and uh, we hope to see you again soon one of these days listeners if you want to leave us a friendly review on apple podcasts that will be very pleasant and very altruistic of you and if you want to support us then search patreon bunker podcast to find out how you can do that we'll see you soon thanks for listening bye bye The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.